Section 11 of The Fourth Dimension Simply Explained by Henry Parker Manning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in July 2016. Essay 9 The Fourth Dimension Algebraically Considered by N. Burton Howard Camp, Middletown, Connecticut. The concept of the fourth dimension is exclusively a mathematical one, and, therefore, can hardly be made intelligible without the introduction of a few mathematical ideas. The more important aspects of it, however, I shall endeavour to explain with the use only of the elements of that algebra and geometry which are usually taught in high schools. The reader will recognize the following as types of equations with which he has dealt, though he may not recollect clearly all their properties. 1. x plus y is equal to 4. 2. x square plus y square is equal to 1. 3. 2x square plus 3y square is equal to 1. Here the letters x and y are, in first courses in algebra, commonly called the unknowns. I do not propose to inquire what values these unknowns may have, and, of course, these equations are not supposed to be true simultaneously. They are chosen almost at random as three entirely separate and independent examples to illustrate the fact that some equations contain two and only two unknowns. In other equations we may put three unknowns, in still others four or five, or as many as we like. 4. x plus y plus z is equal to 4. And 5. x square plus y square plus z square is equal to 1. Are examples of equations in which the number of unknowns is 3, and they are x, y and z. 6. w plus x plus y plus z is equal to 4 and 7. w square plus x square plus y square plus z square is equal to 1 are equations in which their number is 4. Now, just as illustrations are valuable in making language vivid, so the mathematician finds that, when he can form some sort of a picture of his algebraic work, he realizes more clearly what it means, and it happens, fortunately, that there are a number of ways in which he can form pictures of such equations as these. I shall speak of but one, the simplest and common method. According to this method, in order to form pictures of equations in two unknowns, like 1, 2, and 3, it is necessary to use space of two dimensions, for example, a plane. The essential thing is that anywhere in this space it must be possible to conceive of two lines intersecting at right angles. Some readers will recognize this as the method of rectangular Cartesian coordinates, but it is not important that the principle be explained in detail, for all we shall need to know is that it exists. It turns out that the picture we get for equation 1 is a straight line, 
drawn, of course, in some plane, that equation 2 is a circle, and that equation 3 is an ellipse. There are besides a host of other curves, corresponding to all conceivable algebraic equations in two unknowns, spirals, heart-shaved curves, figure eights, etc., some of which have been given names, and some of which have not. In order to represent equations like 4 and 5, in which the number of unknowns is 3, space of two dimensions will not suffice. Now we shall need to let three straight lines intersect so that each makes a right angle with the other two, and that cannot happen in space of two dimensions. Three adjacent edges of a cube, however, are known to be mutually perpendicular, and so the ordinary space of three dimensions, to which we are accustomed, will be suitable, and by its aid we will be able to picture these equations. It happens that the representations of equations 4 and 5 will then be surfaces. Equation 4 will be a plane surface, and equation 5 the surface of a sphere. And here again we may write any number of equations in three unknowns, and each will be representable by some surface, perhaps plane, perhaps gently curving, perhaps full of convolutions so that it folds in and out upon itself. When, therefore, an equation contains exactly two unknowns, or exactly three unknowns, it can be represented thus by some curve drawn in space of two dimensions, or by a surface in space of three dimensions. But when the number of unknowns is increased to four, as in equations six and seven, the method fails, for now it requires a kind of space in which may be drawn four straight lines, all meeting at one point, and each perpendicular to the other three. It is not possible to conceive of such a situation, and therefore the mathematician is obliged to do without the representation he has thus naturally been led to desire. But, though he cannot have the picture, he can have the language. Equation 6 looks a good deal like equation 4, which is a plane, and indeed it has many of the same properties. So he decides to call 6 also a plane, but to distinguish it from 4 he calls it a plane in 4 dimensions, while 4 is a plane in 3 dimensions. Footnote. These are not suitable terms, for an actual plane or a sphere may be spoken of as in space of 4 dimensions. Hyperplane and hyperspace are terms often used. HPM. End footnote. Likewise, 7 is to be called a spherical surface in four dimensions, while its analogy, 5, is a spherical surface in three dimensions. He does not mean to imply by such language that it may be possible to conceive of four mutually perpendicular straight lines. He does not suggest anything whatever about our ideas of space, or, to speak more precisely, about our ideas of motion. He is merely using analogous terms because he finds them convenient. They possess for him some valuable qualities, they are brief and suggestive, and so, with full knowledge of their limitations, he uses them. They are brief because it is generally shorter to give merely the name of a surface 
than it is to describe minutely the general class of equations which that surface represents. It would take us too far afield to show fully in what ways he finds them suggestive, but a single illustration may be helpful. Suppose he wishes to find out what relations exist between all equations which, like six, he has decided to call planes in space of four dimensions, and all equations which, like seven, he has decided to call spherical surfaces in space of four dimensions. These are equations in four unknowns. He looks back at their analogues in three unknowns, that is, at equations like four and five, for which he has really found the geometrical meaning. These are really representable by the plane and by the spherical surface, and so, by thinking of the geometrical relations between these two figures, he has a clue to what he is to look for in dealing with the corresponding equations in four unknowns. Of course, he may not find it, for it is not true that always the same relations hold for these different sets of equations, but at least he is on the road to discovery. If he does not find what he is looking for, he is liable to find something else. From this point of view, then, the fourth dimension is a convenient phraseology, and only that. It is customary also to use in like manner the terms fifth dimension and sixth dimension, and so on, in speaking of equations in more than four unknowns. And when the mathematician thus uses such terms, when, for example, he speaks of a surface in four-dimensional space, he is speaking and thinking merely of some kind of equation in four unknowns. But there is another point of view from which the fourth dimension is sometimes considered. Hopeless as it is for us, who have lived only in three-dimensional space, to conceive of four straight lines meeting at a point so that each is perpendicular to the other three, Yet it is quite possible for us to find out what sort of things would happen if indeed four such straight lines could exist. To assume, then, that four such straight lines may exist, and to deduce the logical results of that assumption, is another of the mathematician's problems. It matters not to him that his assumption asserts an inconceivable situation. He is not concerned at all with the question of its truth, only with its logical consequences. Of course, such a geometry does not at the present state of our knowledge have important practical applications, but at least it is rich in ideas, and it is by no means certain that its relation to our surroundings is not closer than it appears. For, though in this sense four-dimensional space, that is, motion in four different mutually perpendicular directions is to us unthinkable, we cannot surely say that it may not exist. If it does exist, we can know something of those four-dimensional bodies which may also exist, and a number of interesting results follow. Suppose, for example, we consider some closed two-dimensional figure, say a circle, we know it is impossible for a point which always remains in the plane of the circle to move from that part of the plane which is inside the circle to that part which is outside without passing through the circumference. But if the point may make use of motion in a third dimension, 
and so get out of the plain for an instant, it may jump over the circumference, and without touching it at all, reach the outer part of the plain. Likewise, if we try to think of a point moving from the inside of a sphere to the outside, without passing through the surface, the thing is inconceivable to us, and so we say it is impossible. But if we assume a fourth dimension, then the point could, so to speak, jump over the surface and appear again in three-dimensional space outside the sphere. The same is true of any such closed surface in three dimensions. If a prisoner could make use of motion in a fourth dimension, we know he could escape from the inside of a closed cell without touching the sides at all. From these two aspects, then, the mathematician commonly regards this subject of four dimensions. One furnishes an abbreviated and suggestive method of denoting various types of equations in four unknowns, and the other is the supposition that four mutually perpendicular straight lines can exist. Neither can properly be the basis of any physical theory, at least at present, for the one is only a phrase, and the other is a supposition which is not surely supported by anything that we know of the physical universe. At the same time, it may be well to remember that there is nothing self-contradictory in the assertion that each of four straight lines can be perpendicular to all of the other three. Whatever proofs have been given that this is impossible are based, ultimately, upon the intuition that space is three-dimensional. In other words, the only reason we have for believing that only three straight lines can be mutually perpendicular is that such a condition is the only one we have ever experienced. End of section 11